Well, there's a little girl by the name of Jenny who was normally really sweet, but one day she got into a big fight with her best friend by the name of Hannah. And as the two moms uh, saw their daughters fighting, they ran over, they broke up the fight, and uh, Jenny's mom said, I don't know why she pulled Hannah's hair. The devil must have made her do it. Now, uh, she was, her daughter was standing nearby, and overhearing that comment, Jenny said, Well, Satan did suggest that I pull her hair, but kicking Hannah in the shins was my own idea. <laughs> now, I think we're a little bit like that little girl, aren't we? We're all capable of getting into trouble on our own. But whenever we hear somebody uh, talk about trouble, sometimes you'll hear somebody say, Well, the devil made me do it, or the devil made him or her do it. And they're kind of joking Uh, many times. And for many people, I think, unfortunately, they think the devil is a joke as well. Uh, We see him as some comic strip character, you know, in a red suit with uh, pointy horns, a pitchfork. He's often, you know, perched on our shoulder, whispering bad things in our ears. Uh, And when it comes to the devil, he'd love for us to think that about him. He'd love for us Uh, to see him that way. His hope is to be ignored and written off as some childhood fairy tale. He's a lot like a burglar who likes to operate in the dark. Under the uh, Satan likes to work in the shadows. But what we're going to see today as we turn to the last part of 1 Peter chapter 5 is that God shines the light on Satan. God wants us to know that Satan is real and he is a real threat. And so what he does today is he has Peter write to us about who he is. Now, this isn't so we can huddle, so that we'll huddle in fear, but it's so that we can know who our foe is, so we can know who the enemy is that uh, we are fighting in the world. So I invite you to look with me now at 1 Peter chapter 5, where we're going to begin by reading verses 8 through 11 as we look at what Peter says about dealing with the devil. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, you'll notice that the passage begins with a couple of commands. The first one says, be of sober spirit. Now, this word means to be watchful. It means to be self-controlled, not under the influence of intoxicants. The second is similar, as we're told, to be alert. And this word means to be awake and watchful. This is the word that was used in Matthew 26, 41, where Jesus told Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane to keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Now, you remember Peter didn't do as Christ said. He fell asleep, and because of that, he was not prepared for the temptation that soon followed, and Peter ended up denying that he knew Jesus three times that night. Peter, as he's writing this letter through God's direction, knows that many of those he's writing to in the first century would be like him, tempted to deny Christ, tempted to compromise their faith in order to save their own lives. Uh, He tells us in verse 9, the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now, the context of this was the first century. They were under the Roman emperor Nero. He was persecuting and killing Christians. And a lot of times, I think sometimes as believers, we read the Bible and we think, well, you know, that was a really hard time, and it was. 
But I don't know if you realize this, but more Christians have been killed for their faith in the last 100 years than in the previous 19 centuries combined. More believers have been martyred in the last century than in the 1900 years that preceded it combined. Even here in America, things are getting more costly to be a Christian. Now, I doubt that many of us who are living today will ever face a decision to deny our faith or to die, but there are Christians around the world that that is a daily choice. But for us in America, there is a daily choice that we have to make as to whether we will compromise our faith in Christ uh, for the comforts of the world or to avoid problems and persecution. God has Peter tell us to be prepared for those times where we're tempted to conceal we're a Christian or to pursue the comforts of the world rather than stand for our faith in Christ. As it comes to persecution, as it comes to the things we face, sometimes Satan will attack you head on. Some of you uh, as Christians in this, in this room, those of you worshiping with us online, you've faced uh, frontal assaults by the enemy Satan. You've had situations where you were confronted for being a believer and you had to make a choice. But the way that Satan often attacks is more subtle. He doesn't always come with a head-on attack. What he does more often is subtly twists the truth. It's like the proverbial frog in a kettle, where if you throw a, a frog in a pot of boiling water, he'll feel the, the temperature and immediately try to leap out. But if you put him in lukewarm water and you slowly turn the heat up, the water will get to a boiling point and it won't try to jump out because it doesn't realize what's happening. And this is the way Satan likes to operate. 2 Corinthians 11.3 warns us, But I am afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray for the, from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. When it comes to how Satan deceived Eve, you can go back to Genesis chapter 3, because it tells us in Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any any tree of the garden? Now, I said Satan likes to subtly twist the truth. And so when he says, well, God said you can't eat from anything in the garden, what God actually said in Genesis 3.17 is, you shall not eat from the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, what God said is you can have anything, anything in the entire world, anything in the whole garden except one thing. And what Satan did was he twisted it, changed the word the tree to any tree, and suddenly God was this terribly unfair and restrictive person. We see Satan doing the same thing with sex. How many times have you talked to somebody that says, well, God's approved. God doesn't want you to enjoy sex. He doesn't want you to have those, you know, those pleasures. Friends, can I remind you of something? God is the one who invented sex. God is the one who gave it to us. God wants us to enjoy it. In fact, as you read the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, eat, friends, imbibe deeply, O lovers. A modern translation would be, go for it. Have all you want. But within the context that I designed it, in a marriage relationship where a husband and a wife enjoy the gift that I've given to you. God is not trying to keep anything good from us. What he's trying to do is give us his very best. It's why as you read Hebrews 13.4, God tells us, keep the marriage bed undefiled. Why does God say keep the marriage bed undefiled? Because, again, he loves us. He's protecting us. 
If you wait until you're married and you are monogamous with only your husband or wife your entire life, you will never worry about a sexually transmitted disease. You will never worry about false intimacy. You will never worry about unplanned pregnancies within the context that God designed it. And what he said is, I'm not trying to keep anything good from you. I'm trying to give you the very best. Because I love you, I want to keep you from things that could hurt you. And when it comes to God's love, this is another area where Satan subtly twists the truth to make God the opposite of what he is. I talk to people all the time who tell me, Roger, I can't believe in a God who would send anybody to hell. That's not a loving God. And I gently remind them, do you realize that everyone is headed to hell on their own? God doesn't send anyone there. We all earn uh, that, that ourselves. The Bible tells us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are all sinners. We are all deserving of the punishment of eternal separation from God. That's because of our sin. And it's because of God's love that he saves us from the consequences of our sins when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's why Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is what saves us from hell. It's why John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God is a God of love, but Satan twists the truth to make it seem like he's something he's not. Jesus tells us in John 8.44, Satan was a murderer from the very beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, Satan specializes in twisting the truth. He has a lot of names, a lot of titles. And one of those, John 8 tells us, is he's called the father of lies. That's who he is. Now, sometimes... People miss who Satan is because they're looking for this full frontal assault that matches the other names that we more commonly know Satan by. He's called the great dragon, the evil one, the serpent, the prince of darkness, and Apollyon, which means the destroyer. And because those are titles that describe who he is and how he works, what most people expect is when Satan is around or involved in something, there's this this dark presence But that's not the only way he works. 2 Corinthians 11.14 tells us Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan was created as an angel of light. As you read the scriptures, as you see who he is, as you see how he was first made, uh, he still has those characteristics he was created with. In Isaiah 14.12, he's called the star of the morning and the sun of the dawn. I want you to listen to how Satan's beauty and power are described in Ezekiel chapter 28. In Ezekiel 28, 12 through 17, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. You were the anointed cherub who covers and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you and you sinned. 
Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. Satan wasn't content to be the highest created angel, to be one created in power and beauty and to be in the very presence of God in the throne room of heaven. What he said is, I want the throne of heaven. I want to raise myself to the position of God. And because of his rebellion and disobedience, he was cast to the earth. He's down here among us. It's why 1 Peter 5, 8 warns us, he's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's prowling about here on the earth. Now, while Satan has lost his place in heaven, He's not yet been permanently barred. That's something, again, people misunderstand about him. I don't know if you realize this. Satan can come and go into heaven right now. We see that in Job chapter 1 and verses 6 through 7. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God, that's one of the titles for angels. There's a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And as he's down here walking about on the earth, we see in verse 8 of 1 Peter 5, not only is he a prowling lion, but he's called our adversary. The word adversary is a legal term that literally describes a person who opposes you in court. It's like the prosecuting attorney in a trial. Another name that Satan has is the devil. And the word devil means a slanderer, an accuser. Revelation 12.10 tells us Satan is the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before God day and night. It's when he goes before the Lord and he says, Hey, I was down there in San Antonio, Texas, and I saw this guy, Roger Poupart. You know the pastor at Wayside Chapel? And God, do you know what Roger's been doing? And he starts listing my sins. Now, we don't have time for that today. So, um, but you can put your own sins in there, right? Because the Bible tells us for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Satan goes before God and he says about you or me, hey, Roger did this and this. And as he's laying out the case, as he's presenting our sins before the Lord, he's the prosecuting attorney. Now, as Satan is presenting his accusations, Uh, about our disobedience, the Bible tells us we are not without representation because Jesus Christ is called our high priest. Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of God, is there. And Christ stands up. And he is our defense attorney. He's our advocate. According to 1 John 2.1, the word advocate literally means an attorney. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Jesus serves as our attorney. Satan prosecutes us, and Jesus stands up and he makes our defense. Now, unlike lawyers that you may see in a courtroom today who look for a legal loophole, who come up with an alibi that are trying to confuse the jury or you know, find a way to get you off through some you know, loophole, that's not how Jesus operates. What Jesus says is, all that stuff you just said about Roger, or Jose, or Phyllis, yeah, it's right. He did it. He's guilty. And before you say, I want to fire Jesus, I want a better attorney, 
listen to how Jesus operates as our attorney because 1 John 2, 2 says this, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, this word propitiation literally means payment. In legal terms, there's something called expiation. If there is a judgment and a penalty owed, a fine that has to be assessed and paid, when that fine is paid, it is labeled expiated. You've, you've satisfied the requirement, you've covered the cost, the judgment is rendered and paid, and you're done. Propitiation means to pay that penalty, but it goes a step farther to include removing the wrath. You see, if you just simply paid the penalty... And that's what Jesus did on the cross. John 19.30 tells us, as Jesus was crucified, as he was dying, John 19.30 says, he said, teteleste, a Greek word that literally means paid in full. What did Jesus pay in full? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. He paid the penalty of death you and I owe for our sins. And he said, the account is closed, the penalty is paid for those who receive me as their savior. My righteousness, my payment is put into your account and you are set free legally. But he goes a step farther beyond expiation to propitiation. And what propitiation means is you remove the wrath. It means the relationship that we had that was broken. When we sin, we are separated from God. We, we owe that penalty and Jesus says, I've closed the account, you're, you're free and clear of the penalty, but then he goes a step farther to say, I've restored the relationship. It's why we are called sons and daughters of God. It's why when we come to faith in Christ, we are adopted into the family. We are told we will sit around the banquet table for eternity with God. Because he says, I've removed the damage to the relationship. You are perfectly restored. And this is what Christ did for you and me. He says, yes, Roger is guilty of his sins. And then what he does is he presents his nail-scarred hands. And he says to God the Father, I paid the penalty in full. Roger is guilty. The penalty is paid. And Jesus Christ says, case is closed. That's what he does for us. Jesus, uh, as he paid the penalty for us, also tells us, but you don't have to keep on adding to the pile of disobedience because 1 John 2, 1 said, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. Now, it doesn't mean we will never sin again. Uh, 1 John tells us in verse 10 that if we say we're without sin, we make God a liar. We will still sin, but he says you don't have to continue adding to the pile of disobedience. And he tells us ways to stop. One thing is found in 1 Corinthians 6.18 where we're told to flee immorality. 1 Timothy 6.11 echoes this as it says, But flee these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. What this is telling us, uh, men and women, is if you know when you're with certain people, or when you get into a certain environment or setting, you're more likely to get into trouble. God says, why do you go there? Why do you spend time with those people? He says, flee from that. Get out of there. He says, if you know uh, there are certain websites you go to, then put blocking software on your computer or your phone. He says, if there are movies you're tempted to watch that, that send you into places you shouldn't be, then cut the cable. He says, do what it takes. 
Now, I know you're, you may be thinking, well, you know, I can take all the steps there are in the world, and there are still times that I will find myself facing temptation. Of course there is. There was somebody who once said, you can't keep the birds of the air from flying over your head, but brothers and sisters, you can keep them from nesting in your hair. And so many of us go into places or we have things that we do that open ourselves up to these temptations. So what God is saying is set up boundaries. Utilize the protections I've given you to help you stay away from the temptations that cause you to stumble. Now he says when those times come where you find yourself confronted with one of these situations, look at 1 Peter 5.9. He says resist him, firm in your faith. The Greek word translated here as resist is a, a term of defense. It means literally to withstand the attack of another. And the way that we are able to withstand the attack of our enemy, uh, you can look at Ephesians chapter 6 because God says, I haven't left you on your own. I've given you what you need to face your foe. Ephesians six ten through 18 tells us this, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. As you look at all that God has given to us, one of the things he mentions is the sword of the Spirit. That's what the Bible is. The Bible is the sword of the Spirit. And as you think about uh, God giving us his word, uh, this is what Jesus Christ himself used to defeat Satan. Remember that Jesus, when he walked the earth, was fully man, but he was still fully God. And as God, he could have defeated Satan any way he chose. But when he was taken into the wilderness, as he was tested and tempted, again, the way Satan operates is in full view there, because what he did was he subtly twisted the word of God. He would come to Jesus and he would quote a passage of Scripture, or I should say he would misquote a passage of Scripture. And Jesus, being God, said, I know the word perfectly. And he would correct the misquotation. Or the, Satan would apply it in the wrong way and Jesus would apply it properly. And by doing that, he was able to defeat every temptation that Satan brought. And he gives us the very same tool that he used to defeat Satan, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So we need to be doing as Peter told us at the beginning of this passage. We're to be alert. We're to prepare ourselves through prayer and learning God's word so that we can stand against Satan. Now, when you find yourself facing Satan, again, we can do as we see in the scriptures. I told you that Satan was the highest created angel. The next most powerful angel is named Michael the archangel. He's the captain of the Lord's army. And there's a point where Satan and Michael were in a battle. And listen to how Jude 1.9 tells us that Michael battled Satan. Jude 1.9 says, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. Do you remember what Ephesians 6.18 told us? 
Pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert and with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We can go to God and say, God, I need your help here. I need your protection. I need you to overcome the enemy. Now, maybe you've heard a Christian praying where they're binding Satan. And I see a lot of bad theology when people are praying against the devil. Uh, Frankly, it scares me sometimes the way some people approach uh, a battle with the devil. They, they think Satan is their whipping boy, that they're in control and they can kind of slap him around and command him around. Uh, it's like walking a lion on a leash. If it ever wants to turn around and eat you, uh, you, it's not gonna, you have no control. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we can ask God to bind our enemy, but God is the only one who binds him. And if you want to know when Satan is going to be bound, read Revelation chapter 20 because this is what it tells us in Revelation 21 through 3. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things he must be released for a short time. I want you to remember, Peter told us, Satan is a roaring lion roaming the earth. Job said he's coming and going before God. He is loose. He is among us. Now, again, we don't have to fear him. Uh, God is in control. God can limit Satan and what he can do. And God is the one who will bind Satan, Satan at the time of the millennial kingdom. This is that thousand-year period where Christ is reigning physically on the earth. He will be thro- Satan will be thrown into the abyss. And then he will be released at the end of the thousand years to lead one final rebellion against God. And then God will judge him and and all of the fallen angels once and for all. And they will be thrown into what's called the lake of fire, what we call hell. And a misconception people sometimes have about Satan is that he's going to be running hell. Friends, he is in hell in judgment. He's not there running the place. He is there in punishment. Uh, So God will bind him. But until that day, he's roaming about the earth like a roaring lion. So, so what does that mean? Do we huddle in fear? No. No, we don't have to. We need to be like an electrician. Have you ever seen an electrician work with electricity? The, the person is skilled. They know all about electricity. And when they do uh, the precautions that are needed, they can be around live wires. They can be, you can see these linesmen up on high-tension wires and things. They know and they respect the power of electricity, and they take the proper precautions. And it's the same way. We have a powerful foe named Satan. I don't fear him, but I respect him because I know who he is. And when I have to deal with him, I deal with him as Michael did. The Lord rebuke you. The Bible tells us when you come against him, you come prayed up. And so Satan is somebody we don't have to fear, but we do need to respect his power, and we need to turn to God. James 4, 7 says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The devil is real and powerful, but brothers and sisters in Christ, we have somebody much bigger and more powerful than Satan in us. 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. When you come to faith in Christ, when you ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life, we talk about inviting him into our heart. The Bible tells us we are also sealed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
the third person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and then God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit indwells us. The Bible says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you? And we're told that greater is he, the Holy Spirit, in us than he, Satan, that is in the world. We have God's Holy Spirit in us. He's bigger and more powerful than Satan. You can, you can read chapters 1 and 2 in the book of Job and see how Satan is not allowed to touch any believer, any person under God's protection without God's permission. Satan can't touch you unless God allows things. And God knows where the limits are. God knows what you can handle. You read about Job and God said you can do this much and then you can do this much and this much, but you can't do this. As you read 1 Corinthians 10.13, it tells you uh, and that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, God will provide the way of escape so that you can stand up under it. What God says is, I know what you can handle. I know how far uh, things can go with you before you will crash and burn. And if you say, well, Roger, I'm already past that point. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says God will provide the way of escape so that you can stand up under it. He says, if you're in a situation, remember what we began with, flee immorality. He says, if you're trying to go toe-to-toe with Satan, and he says, get out of there. Don't stand there and fight him. In Luke twenty two thirty one, Jesus told Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, and I've prayed for you. Remember, friends, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ in heaven. He is there in the throne room of God the Father, and he is our advocate. He's not only our propitiation, but he's standing for us in the battle. You and I can't put Satan on a leash, but God can, and he will limit how far Satan can go. Now, you may be thinking, well, if that's the case, then why are Christians martyred? Why do believers die in our day if Satan is, is limited by God? Because as we've seen all throughout First Peter, sometimes God is allowing persecution and suffering and, yes, even death of believers. Satan doesn't win when a Christian is killed. All Satan is is the elevator boy that is taking believers from earth to their reward in heaven. The Bible tells us in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 1 Peter 5, 10 tells us, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, that's heaven, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I want you to notice God uses four different verbs here uh, to talk about how he helps us in our war with Satan. The first word perfect means to equip, to restore, to mend. If you read Matthew 4.21, this is the verb that is used there to describe uh, the disciples mending their fishing nets. They've come in from a, a fishing trip and they go in and they repair the nets so that where the tears and the holes and things are are fixed so the next time they cast the nets, they will be uh, equipped and ready to catch the fish. The word was also used to describe a doctor who sets a broken bone. If you've ever seen an x-ray of where there's a break in a bone, you know that after it calluses over, uh, it is stronger at the point of the break than it was before. And this is the picture that God uses. He says there are times we fail. There are times there's a break. 
And he says, but God is able to come in and restore, to, to mend you, to strengthen you, and you will be stronger uh, than you were ever before for the next battle. Peter knew firsthand about the restoring power of God and the grace that God offered to him. Remember, Peter denied Jesus three times. And earlier in this series, we talked about John chapter 21, where Jesus restored Peter three times. Peter, do you love me? Tend my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. He went in and he restored him. Peter knew what it was to say, I was broken. I failed. But God wasn't done with me. He, he put my life back together and he used me. And friends, he can do the same with you. Whatever the failure is you've had in your life, if you think that God can't use you, you're listening to the father of lies. God the Father says, I'm here to, to restore, to mend, to equip and use you. The second thing Peter says is God will confirm us. The Greek word found here is sterizo. This is where we get our English word steroids. It means to strengthen, to be settled. Uh, it, it, it speaks of just that, that power and strength. It says if everything is collapsing around us, our salvation is secure with, with God. The third verb used is strengthen, and it describes the strength that God provides for us. And the final thing mentioned is that God will establish you. This word means to lay a firm foundation. You can read Matthew seven twenty four. Uh, and following, and there you find where Jesus describes the wind and the waves coming against a house. And he says, if a house is built on shifting sand, when the storm hits, it will collapse. But he says, if you built on the firm foundation of the rock, the wind and the waves will burst against the house and it will stand. And this again is the picture uh, of what happens. All of us have seen the erosion around town, maybe in your own yards with all the rain we've had and where there's just, you know, loose dirt, it just washes away. But where there's, you know, a stone or, or cement foundation, uh, the rain just runs off. As Peter's writing this, I want to remind you, he's not safe in some ivory tower. Peter's not just sitting back in a safe place saying to those who were suffering, oh, you know, you're going to be okay, God's good. Peter was in Rome. He was right at the heart of the persecution. In fact, Peter uh, would himself be martyred for his faith. Historians tell us he was crucified upside down because he said he wasn't worthy to die in the same way as his Lord and Savior Jesus died. And so Peter, as he's talking to those who are in the midst of the suffering and persecution, is himself facing it. But because he had that firm foundation in the unmovable rock of Jesus Christ, he's telling others who also have that firm foundation uh, that they, they will be, they will be you know, held up and sustained by, by God. This is why he breaks into praise in verse 11. He says, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then he brings this letter to a close. And as he does so, notice that he ends with a personal note as he says in verses 12 through 14. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to, peace to you all who are in Christ. Now, the name Silvanus is a Roman form of Silas. You've read through the New Testament and seen Silas mentioned. Uh, we see here he was serving as a secretary 
for what God was, was giving to Peter. Uh, there are times you'll see in the New Testament, Paul will uh, end one of his New Testament letters by saying, I've picked up the pen myself and see what the letters I'm writing. And this is Peter. As God's Holy Spirit is delivering the message through Peter, he's, he's in some places dictating the letter through Silas. And then he says, but so that you can see that God has given me this message and I'm the, the one being used by God, he says, let me literally pick up the pen and sign it here at the end. Let me close out so that you can see that, that God is delivering the message through me. When he says he's in Babylon, this, as we talked about in the very opening sermon in the series, you'll remember, was a code name for Rome. Because there was persecution, because this was happening, uh, Peter didn't want to bring extra suffering on the saints, and so they would use code names. We see this in our day. We have missionaries in closed countries, and they will often write to us in code. They'll, they'll use a different name for where they are. They'll use a, a, a different name for a person they're talking about so they can't be identified. And we know it's Rome because not only has all of this, you know, been said about Rome and what's happening, but notice that he mentions Mark. And the first century church knew that John Mark, this is John Mark, uh, is there in Rome. And so when he says, Mark is with me, people again know where he is. Now, finding John Mark mentioned there uh, would have given further hope to those first century Christians when it comes to what Peter is saying about how God will take and he'll restore you, how he'll use you, how he can protect you even in the midst of a failure that maybe you've experienced. If you've ever read in Acts chapter 15, you know the story of John Mark and his failure. He was out on a missionary journey with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. And as they were traveling and they were going through and sharing the gospel, there was persecution and opposition that came. And he started struggling. Things got hard. And John Mark, as a young uh, believer, bailed out. He quit. He went home. He left uh, Paul and Barnabas in, in a lurch. And after they got back uh, and they met with John Mark, they were going out on another journey, a missionary journey. And John Mark said, I want to go. And Paul said, no, you can't go. I can't trust you. You're going to cut and run again when things are difficult. And Barnabas, whose name you'll remember means the son of encouragement, said, I'll take John Mark. And sometimes God uses hard things. Sometimes he separates believers or, or splits ministries. And he can use them in, in different ways. And this is what happened. As John Mark went out with Barnabas and Paul took another uh, one with him, the, the ministry was multiplied. And John Mark proved himself faithful. He grew. He learned. God restored him. In fact, if you've ever read the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament, God used John Mark to write that for us. So you see a man who failed, a man who looked like his ministry was over, and God said, I'm not done with John Mark. He restored him. He used him in greater ways to encourage us even in this day as we read Mark. Even Paul, who said, I'm done with John Mark. As you read about Paul, as he got to the end of his life, as Paul was in prison facing death himself, he requested some things be brought to him. Parchments, which were the scriptures, a coat because he was cold, and he said, and send John Mark. I want this man to come and minister to me, this choice servant of God, a man who had had a break, who had been restored and was stronger. He said, send John Mark to me. And so as these first century Christians were going through things, as some of them failed, as some of them denied Christ, God was saying to them, I'm not done with you. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're sitting here this morning, if you're worshiping online with us and you're saying, God's done with me. I've made such a mess of my life. He could never use me. You're listening to the father of lies, Satan. Listen to God the Father who says, I love you. I'm not done with you. I can restore you no matter what your sins are, no matter what mistakes you've made. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Men and women, boys and girls, God is not done with you. God can use you if you will humble yourself and turn to him and ask for his forgiveness. Come to faith in him. Invite the Holy Spirit into your life to empower you and use you. And God will walk with you through this world and through the trials and tribulations that you may be facing now or those that are yet to come. As Peter brings this book to a close, he ends the same way he began in chapter 1, verse 2, by reminding us that God is the source of all peace, as he says, peace to you all who are in Christ. As we end today, we're coming to the communion table. And as we come to the communion table, it reminds us of what we've talked about today, how God overcame our enemy Satan and defeated him. And it reminds us of how God offers us peace with himself as he restores our broken relationship. As you came in today, you should have received uh, some communion elements like this. In a moment, we'll open these up. But uh, I want us just to take a moment now to go to the Lord in prayer. The Bible tells us to confess our sins, to come with clean hands and hearts, to come in a worthy manner. Uh, before we partake of communion. So as you think of your life, if there are some things you've uh, failed in the past, if there are some sins you've committed that you've not yet asked God for his forgiveness, then I want you to use this time just to go to the Lord in prayer. We have ushers with elements that will be coming down the aisles. If you don't have a communion uh, set of elements, just raise your hand. They'll see you and bring those to you. Let's just take a moment as they're distributing the elements uh, to go to the Lord in prayer. And keep your hands up if you don't have these, and they'll bring them to you. Let's pray to the Lord, confessing our sins, and then I'll lead us in communion here in a moment. If you'll take the elements now, you can peel back the top and it'll expose a wafer. This is simply a piece of bread, but what it represents is the body of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who's called the bread of life. Jesus came and he took on flesh and blood so that he could go to the cross and he could take on your sins and mine so that he could be the payment for our sins. As we hold this bread, as we think about what Jesus did as he willingly gave his life to be that sacrifice for you and me, just take a moment to thank him for who he is and what he did for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving your life to give us the gift of eternal life, the bread of life, Jesus, that represents Jesus Christ, seated in remembrance of him.
as you peel back the next layer, be careful not to spill the juice on yourself. Here we have just simply grape juice, but it represents the precious blood of Jesus that was shed for you and me. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Jesus died, gave his life, shed his blood for you and me to wash away our sins. The blood of Jesus, drink it in remembrance of him. Join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for your son. We thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to come to take our place, to go to the cross and die to pay the penalty of death we owed for our sins. We thank you, Jesus, you not only paid the penalty, but you removed the wrath As our propitiation, you restored us to full and complete fellowship as sons and daughters of God. And we thank you for that. Lord God, we thank you for your word, for this study that we've gone through in the the book of 1 Peter that speaks so much to the times in which we live with the unrighteousness in the world, the increasing persecution for those who are followers of you. Lord God, would we be faithful men and women? Would we represent you well in those times where we're tempted to compromise Uh, Would we stand firm for our faith? Lord God, we thank you for your protection. We do have a, a real and powerful enemy named Satan, the devil, the destroyer. And yet we have a more powerful uh, redeemer and savior named Jesus Christ. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you live within us. And greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So God, would we go out as men and women who represent you with the confidence to speak the truth about who Christ is, knowing that you are in control and you will watch over and protect us. Thank you again for your great love for us. It's in the name of our Savior, Jesus, we pray and thank you. Amen. Well, thank you for worshiping with us. As you leave today, if you'll take these elements with you, and there will be receptacles by the door, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. God bless you.